Well, hello again, and welcome back to Carmelite Conversations on Radio Maria, Christian Voice in Your Home. So happy to be with you today, the day after uh, the beginning of Advent for us. Uh, Advent, of course, a very important season for us as we get ready to welcome the Lord and prepare our hearts to welcome the Lord. And so I'm happy to be in studio today with Francis Harry, my co-host, to begin this preparation for Advent. How are you today, Francis? I'm feeling so blessed, and um, I'm really hoping this Advent season for each and every one of us that we can open our hearts and um, grow in the ways that God is calling us so that we may let him be born anew into each of our souls that we may radiate Christ to the world around us, which is so in need, so much darkness, so much violence, so much confusion and deception. We need, we need Jesus. Well, and in fact, as we sit here in studio today on the 28th of November, when we're um, broadcasting and taping this program, um, we are just uh, hours away from an incident that occurred uh, uh, less than uh, an hour's drive away from here, Francis, at our own beloved Ohio State University, uh, where there has been an incident this morning. We know that uh, as many as 10 people now have been taken to hospital. And so another indication, unfortunately, another event, we don't know all the details, but an event of violence. Uh, this one a bit close to home for us, uh, Francis and I, as we, as I say, are only about 60 miles from the campus. And so um, it is a, a, a difficult time for our world in so many uh, ways. We see the reaction to uh, the recent results of our own election here in the United States. We see violence across the globe. We read reports about Christians still being crucified by um, uh, ISIS uh, terrorists, and they're nothing less than that. We ought to use the term. Uh, And so uh, very disturbing uh, times. Uh, Not perhaps the message for Advent that we uh, might hope uh, to be reflecting on, but it is the reality of our current situation. And so we need to be aware of that, and we need to have uh, a response to that, and of course, we are Carmelites, Francis and I, and we know what our response is, Francis. It's prayer. Yes, indeed, and we encourage everybody to pray. And, um, you know, as we grow in our spiritual lives, we do affect the people around us. And perhaps um, we will be able to touch some soul that is troubled and has been contemplating some evil acts. Uh, you never know how you're going to affect another person. So uh, it's important to think of the responsibility we play by our prayer and our action and, and trying to live Christ. Well, we're going to then begin our conversation today with prayer, and I'm going to ask Francis if you would, as you do each week, so skillfully, please lead us in that opening prayer. And this is from Divine Intimacy by Father Gabriel of St. Mary Magdalene. It's actually day one, first week of Advent, which has a quote from St. Teresa of Avila, The Way of Perfection, in it. And I thought it was very appropriate for our conversation today. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. O my God, word of the Father, word made flesh for love of us, you assumed a mortal body in order to suffer and be immolated for us. I wish to prepare for your coming with the burning desires of the prophets and the just who, in the Old Testament, sighed after you the one Savior and Redeemer. O Lord, send him whom you are going to send. As you have promised, come and deliver us. I want to keep Advent in my soul, that is, 
a continual longing and waiting for this great mystery wherein you, O word, became flesh to show me the abyss of your redeeming, sanctifying mercy. The sweetest Jesus, you come to me with your infinite love and the abundance of your grace. You desire to engulf my soul in torrents of mercy and charity in order to draw it to you. Come, O Lord, come. I, too, wish to run to you with love, but alas, my love is so limited, weak, and imperfect. Make it strong and generous. Enable me to overcome myself so that I can give myself entirely to you. Yes, my love can become strong because, as St. Teresa of Avila tells us, its foundation is the intimate certainty that it will be repaid by the love of God. O oh Lord, I cannot doubt your tenderness because you have given me proofs of it in so many ways with the sole purpose of convincing me of it. Therefore, trusting in your love, my weak love will become strong with your strength. What a consolation it will be, O Lord, at the moment of death, to think that we shall be judged by him whom we have loved above all things. Then we can enter your presence with confidence, despite the weight of our offenses. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you, Francis. Well, today we're going to use a somewhat different format. Francis is actually turning tables on yes, me. Yes, I am. I'm so glad to do this. <laughs> yeah, I'll bet. She's going to put me under the microscope, uh, honestly, based on a trip that I recently had the privilege of uh, taking to our Discouse Carmelite Friars in Washington, D.C. It's called Whitehall. It's where the Friars live. It's less than a mile from the... Um, um, cathedral, the Basilica, actually, of the Immaculate Conception. Many of our listeners, I'm sure, have been there, and I have had the great privilege of being there many, many times. I used to work on a couple of different occasions in Washington, so I'm quite familiar with that area uh, and with the Basilica and even the monastery where I've had the occasion uh, to attend services previously. But in this case, I was actually given an opportunity to go and spend an entire week with the friars um, having to do with uh, some responsibilities I took on. I'll get into that. But anyway, Francis thought it might be, since she and I were having this conversation off the air some number of uh, weeks ago, or I guess it was less than a week ago, and she said, well, maybe this would be a great um, conversation for us to have and uh, give me an opportunity to share both some of my experiences and um, some of the um, uh, surroundings uh, uh, around the monastery there in Washington so that others who either have had the opportunity to go or may in the future uh, could reflect on or may have an opportunity to visit uh, some of these places. So. And, and, you know, it's my hope that... Um, by hearing about these experiences of Mark, that they will help each of us to be more open to God's graces this Advent season. Because, you know, if Christ is going to come again into our hearts, there must be repentance, conversion. Without that, there's no room in the end of our souls for Jesus to come in. And and I just want to bring out um, a sentence that I pulled from... Um, Father Gabriel of St. Mary Magdalene about Advent. And I, I want to tie this ex this week uh, and these experiences that Mark had with our Advent theme. I think it fits so beautifully. Um, this is what Father Gabriel of St. Mary Magdalene said. The spirit of the Advent liturgy 
commemorating the age-long expectation of the Redeemer, will prepare us to celebrate the mystery of the Word made flesh by arousing in each of us an intimate, personal expectation of the renewal, the renewed coming of Christ. So an intimate, personal expectation of the renewed coming of Christ into our soul. This coming is accomplished by grace. To the degree in which grace develops and matures in us, it becomes more copious, more penetrating, until it transforms the soul into an altar Christus. So this Advent journey, I'd like to begin this season by... um, uh, asking Mark a lot of questions about his week, and and I think you will agree that it is worth hearing about these experiences. I'm I'm still relishing um, uh, his sharing with me. So, um, you know, Mark uh, Saint Teresa of Avila tells us it's one thing to receive a grace, another to be able to recognize the grace. And a third grace to be able to speak about it. So um, we implore the Holy Spirit to help us to speak about some of these uh, experiences that you received while visiting our Discalced Carmelite Friars. So I want to start with this question. Okay, so you you had this opportunity to visit our Discalced Carmelite Friars in Washington, D.C. How did this opportunity present itself to you? Well, the current editor of ICS Publications, uh, Sister Pat Morrison, actually, um, many of you know, we have prayed for Sister Pat for some time, and uh, she has survived a struggle with cancer, as has our own beloved Francis, Um, and she is still somewhat incapacitated by that experience, and so she was in need of transportation for an annual meeting. Actually, they have it uh, twice a year, once in Washington, and the other time is often at Holy Hill up in Wisconsin, but... um, she was looking for someone to provide transportation for her uh, to the uh, Discalced Carmelite Friars um, uh, Monastery in D.C., where this week-long series of meetings would be held. Uh, there were some other meetings that occur. We'll talk about that. But um, I volunteered. Uh, in, in fairness, what I said to Sister Pat in an email was, if she didn't find someone else to do it, I'd be happy to do it. As I say, I, I uh, maintain business interests in Washington, and so there's always an opportunity for me to go there. And uh, in this particular case, it allowed me to marry up uh, those responsibilities with a, a week-long stay at the monastery, which was part of the deal. Whoever took her would be allowed to stay at the monastery. Um, and um, I certainly... Was happy to do that. Um, the travel is not bad from this area, about eight hours uh, uh, drive, eight, eight eight hours total drive, and then um, obviously the opportunity to send uh, spend some time with Sister Pat was uh, was a great opportunity. So happy to do it. Well, you know, I've met Sister Pat, and um, I've talked to her many occasions, and I've always enjoyed my time with her. So um, now that we know that you and Sister Pat shared a car. <laughs> for at least eight hours. Um, You know, she's very lively and she's very interesting. She has a great deal of knowledge. I know she works for ICS Publications. She does a lot of their editorial work. Um, So can you just 
Tell us a little bit about what your conversation was like. How was your drive down there and back? Well, you know, it's interesting because I know Sister Pat as well and have for a number of years. In fact, I reminded her that she and I actually met at a Carmelite conference that used to be held just across the campus from Notre Dame University every year. And uh, she didn't remember this, but she and I had actually met there. Oh, gosh, I would say it was probably eight years ago. Mm -hmm. And I reminded her uh, of a couple of incidents of, of those three or four days that we were together that um, clearly demonstrated that I knew that she had been there. So uh, I won't go into any more of that, but I, she's she's an adorable woman. And it's interesting. So when I pulled up into her driveway, we immediately jumped, jumped into conversation and she has a great collection of books, not surprisingly. And I was identifying a number of texts on her uh, bookshelf. And we talked about those and we talked about um, different uh, things going on in the um, in the Carmelite order uh, briefly as we were packing her bags and getting them in the car and you know at some point I simply stopped and said you know sister we're going to run out of roadway before we run out of things to say to each <laughs> right. other but we, we better get going we I probably said, could have so. had a couple of radio programs out of that <laughs> yeah so we we never lacked for things to talk about and of course I don't want to go into too much detail that she might not be comfortable with but I, I will say uh, in other words, by giving her biography, which I know she would be uncomfortable with, but I will say she's she's a uh, world traveler. Her, her career uh, as a um, sister has really uh, brought her across the globe. Literally, she's been a journalist and uh, photographer. She's traveled through the Middle East. She, um, of course, was in the um, Sisters of Saint Paul early on. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, had a number of interesting experiences there. Her Carmelite affinity actually goes all the way back to her childhood. There was a Carmel not far from where she grew up. Um, and she shared some interesting stories about both her childhood, her early days uh, after college, and and um, uh, early days in the order of uh, the Sisters of St. Paul. And that's where she really got into journalism. And without going, as I say, through all the details, eventually she found her way back into Carmel. Uh, and then with the passing of her mother, which occurred a number of years ago, uh, she left Carmel's enclosure and m- m- took on the responsibilities of caring for her mother. And, and that opened up um, the opportunity for her to get back into uh, professional work in journalism, publishing, and so forth. And she had a couple different responsibilities in that regard before joining ICS, the Institute of Carmelite Studies publications, which, as I indicated, she's now the editor for. So what did we talk about? We talked about everything. We talked about the Holy Father. We talked about the Order. We talked about her own history. I shared, of course, my own experiences. Um, I think what I would sort of use as a capstone comment to that, uh, literally 16 hours of conversation, eight hours out, eight hours back, was that we both shared our deep love and appreciation for Carmel and the impact that it's had on our life and how we couldn't really imagine uh, being in any other order with any other charism. And um, there are um, things that uh, uh, Pat is doing beyond her formal ICS responsibilities that I will just share are impacting um, the church and and Carmel in a very special way, and it has to do with vocations and, and with uh, interreligious dialogue. 
um, that I think make her a very special and unique person. So I'd ask people to, to keep her in, in their prayers as she continues this recovery, although she has certainly overcome the, the lion's share of it, but she's, uh, she's certainly a blessing to the church. Well, it's my hope and prayer that we can get her on the program with us to interview her because she's a very interesting and, um, you know, she does need some more healing. Uh, so, you know, I'm so glad that we have faithful listeners that will join in with the prayer for her and for, and for all that she does for us. So I wonder, did she share with you any peak previews of maybe some of the works, the the upcoming publications for ICS? Yeah, and I'm... Um, can we, can I, we get I an, think I can share these. Can, uh, at least give us some <laughs> topics. <laughs> well, uh, one of them, of course, Francis, is one you and I have discussed, and we both talked to ICS about it, and that's the third volume of Elizabeth of the Trinity. St. Elizabeth. How soon? <laughs> I don't know how soon, and she was even able to share with me because, um, uh, again, I don't want to go into the details that are perhaps not pertinent for our conversation, but the logistics of publishing and, of course, the translation from one language to another is what's really um, impeded the... Um, you know, progress and ultimate release of that. But she does anticipate, I believe, in 2017, we will see that third volume from Elizabeth of the Trinity. And uh, it will be spectacular. It will be very revealing. And certainly there'll be a lot of new information uh, from that that was not available to us. It is unfortunate. And she lamented herself the fact that it wasn't uh, available and couldn't coincide with the canonization. That would have been very powerful. Right. Uh, but nonetheless, um, w- we are expecting that. The other one I found very interesting is that there is a biography being concluded now on Father Gratian. Oh, uh, yes. So um, he is a lost character for many in Carmel. Maybe I'm only speaking for myself, but in fairness, we don't have a lot of biographical material available to us. It is there, but it's not available mm-hmm. to us. Um, that's being... Uh, um, uh, authored and completed and again translated uh, and we are expecting uh, I think again in 2017 that we'll see that and that will really do a couple things frankly it will certainly give us introduction into another dominant personality in the reform of the Carmelite order, right. order Father Gratian was certainly that but also will open up a lot of insight into uh, uh, Teresa, St. Teresa Bavilo's own life, she had, of course, a passionate affection for Father Gratian in the spiritual sense, of course, um, and relied on him heavily, perhaps more so even than St. John of the Cross, mm-hmm. for the support she needed for the reform of the order and, frankly, her own spiritual maturity. And so I think those are two uh, very interesting titles that we can anticipate in uh, 2017. Well, thank you for sharing that. We we are excited about both of those. So once you arrived in D.C., where did you get to stay? Well, of course, I stayed in the monastery. Um, the friars were very generous in allowing me to uh, take up residency with them. Um, and is this in... Where in D.C. is this? Yeah, it's, uh, as I say, if you if you know the uh, Basilica uh, of the Immaculate Conception, it's just about a mile due east from that. And okay. at the same time, it's uh, only about a mile and a half from the Capitol. So if oh. you put the two, the Capitol and the... Uh, and the basilica in your mind and, you know, go about a mile one way and about a mile and a half short the other way. That's where it is. It's a little difficult to explain the specifics. I could tell you it's on Lincoln. 
mm-hmm. you know, but most people don't know. What What's interesting about it is, though, the uh, monastery is completely surrounded by graveyards. There's oh. a very large graveyard mm-hmm. on one side, which wraps around the backside, and then across the street, there's a very large graveyard. And I, I say I find that interesting because um, the... Um, you know, constant reminder, St. Teresa of Avila, as we know, kept a skull on her desk. And John the Cross. As it's St. John of the Cross. And many people see pictures of that and they wonder, ooh, how morbid. Why would you do that? Well, of course, it was a reminder to them that ultimately we are all called to, you know, our final, uh, as you described it earlier, this experience, this encounter. And we hope that it is uh, an encounter with one that we spent our life loving. But I thought it was interesting as we sat in the choir, and maybe you have some questions about that but every morning and every evening in our prayers i could look out the window and see all around Mm -hmm. me the gravestone so you know it it sort of sets you uh in order i guess puts things in perspective and you're reminded uh the the limited temporality of our of our worldly existence um when you're sort of you know wrapped around by by gravesite so uh but nonetheless a beautiful facility a beautiful old stone structure just what you'd expect of a monastery um and um a place um, frankly i'm looking forward to to being able to spend some more time in in the future i was very consoled hearing that our discalced carmelite friars are there very close to the capital you know there is a fulcrum of prayer you know exuding from that little monastery that i'm sure is very powerful and um we need that next to the capital we yes. we need lots of them so i'm so yeah. grateful for that so once you entered the monastery what what was the feeling as you walked in and what did you see and you know what was that like well i will say it won't surprise anybody to hear this i guess but the word that uh, most prominently jumps to my mind is silence Mm-hmm. It's a very quiet place, and you know, to, to the extent that you can literally hear people walking down the hall, even if they're a floor or two away from you. Uh, it's quite large. There are two wings, both uh, east and west, and then there are three floors uh, that constitute the residence. Um, the um, again, as I say, the profound uh, sort of um, you know reaction is one of silence. Um, even the meetings that are conducted are, you know, tempered with some degree of, uh, you know, uh, control, if you will. And, and things are never too loud in, in the monastery. There are TVs and radios. I mean, is uh, not in all of the rooms, but in a couple of major um, uh, sort of gathering rooms. They're not on most of the day, only temporarily for uh, the evenings. But uh, even those are, uh, you know, the volume and so forth is controlled. So that sound that. That that uh, uh, idea of silence, I think, is the thing that most um, you know immediately hits you once you enter the monastery. And with your love of Saint Elizabeth of the Trinity and her great value of silence um, and silence and solitude, I'm sure um, your own personal experience of that uh, was even more potent because of how much you appreciate it. So. Um, I know that the friars have a routine and, and how were you a part of the routine? Did they let you, did they let you in, so to speak? <laughs> yeah, I was actually, the schedule is posted each day for exactly how they'll conduct the, 
um, the um, hours of the day. And, of course, every morning begins with prayer, and I was part of that. I would pray with the friars each morning. Morning prayer, right? Yeah, in, did in the did you do the divine office with them also? I mean, as no, far as the... No, that would be done separately by each of them. Um, and I meant I meant the office, you know... That precedes. The, yeah, that precedes, precedes morning that. prayer. That's what I was talking yeah. It's all the divine office. <laughs> right. Uh, but, no, it's morning... Um, the morning hours, uh, and then um, the evening hours, of course. We always prayed those together. Um, There were, um, you know, social times when there is prescribed social time, usually preceding the meal. Not every day, by the way. It doesn't occur every day. Uh, They they do hold to a somewhat regimented schedule. In other words, um, they, they have their morning and then the meetings or whatever their individual responsibilities are constitute the balance of the day, the afternoon until evening office is prayed. And then following evening office, if there's recreation, that's specified. Usually that was held in a specific room upstairs. Uh, and then that's usually followed by the meal. Now, there were many times when meal would be indicated as unstructured. The lunches, for example, were always unstructured. There's no formal meeting for that. You simply uh, choose the time. If you're not fasting, you choose the time that you you're going to eat, and you go to the kitchen, and you serve yourself. How did you know what? It was on the schedule. Oh, there was a schedule was that a you schedule would look every at. Day. Yep. So it okay. would say lunch unstructured, and that meant you go whenever you're ready and you eat. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, people might gather, but uh, you know it wasn't intended uh, for a formal gathering. Uh, dinners usually were, and uh, uh, that was really the meal that was most often sort of structured. The others were, were um, unstructured. To be and did you have to sit in the same place each time, or you just got to roam and sit wherever? Well, no, there's a big meals? banquet hall, uh, and you could sit anywhere at the table that you chose to. And you, I, I meandered about, so I got to speak to different fires at different times. It was good. And I want to hear a little bit more about that. But, <laughs> you know, we're, we're coming up to a break, and I know that um, there's, there's many more questions that I have here to ask of you. So So um, we're just going to take a a little bit of a break right now, and then we'll come back to um, this interview of of Mark with his week with the Friars and and how we can relate that to our own personal Advent journey. So we'll be right back. Thank you. Let there be light, let there be light again For into the dark the sun has sent We will see and we will see once more For unto us the light is born Let there be songs that arise As the angels join in from the skies We will hear the voice of God with us Emmanuel, the word is come
Well, welcome back to Carmelite Conversations on Radio Maria, Christian Voice in Your Home. Uh, as we indicated in the first half of the program, Francis is taking the opportunity to torture, I mean, to ask me to. <laughs> Uh, Put you on the spot <laughs> <laughs> about my um, yeah. It's all good, right? It's all leading to my purification. Well, it's uh, a journey. I mean, here you you, you go. got to visit with the friars in D.C. with our discussed well, friars, and it's a it's a journey, and and that's what Advent's about. So yeah. I think it's a perfect segue into this season. It, it, it is, and and I'm, I know you're going to ask me a question later that I'll squirm under, but uh, <laughs> I am going to say this before that, and and that is this is the second opportunity now in oh maybe the last three or four years that I've had to stay at one of our Carmelite monasteries. I've stayed at Holy Hill for as long as a week there as well and got to roam the grounds and pretty much had free, um, you know, reign to do what I wanted. And this was the same here at uh, Whitehall in D.C. And it is an incredible grace. It really is. You literally get to live as a friar, in my case, for that entire week. And it was a very special uh, opportunity. I wish more people could have that opportunity. Of course, we can go on retreats and so on and so forth, mm-hmm. but this was actually living with our Carmelite friars, and I don't... I've been on retreats, and they're not as special as living in the house of, you know, these men that we have so much respect for, and we rely on so much for, uh, and I'm going to share a little bit about that with regard to uh, Father uh, Kieran Kavanaugh, but um, um, anyway, it was it was a special grace, no question. Now, you told me previously that they let you stay in a very special room, so I want you to tell all of our listeners about this room and what made it so, so special. Yes. So I got in uh, late on the night that we arrived. I'm not going to try to remember everything, but um, the um, uh, sort of the the chaperone, if you will, of the house, Brother Brian, um, brought me up to the second floor in the monastery and said, uh, okay, well, this will be your room. I didn't think there was anything special about it. But I noted there was a brown uh, uh, sort of uh, wooden cover to uh, something on the wall, and I wasn't quite sure what that was. And I asked him about it. He said, well, that's the window down into the chapel. So I said, well, that's interesting. He said, yeah, we, we had to board that up some some time ago and i wasn't you know entirely sure what he meant so anyway to advance the story here quickly uh he left i settled my bags in and i opened the window and it looked dark and i thought oh that's what he meant they boarded it up so so you couldn't see see anything anything out okay now i'll say it was late at night so the next morning i woke up and i was doing my uh, prayers and i happened to glance over at the opened door now and the light began to come through the um stained glass windows in the chapel Uh and i immediately realized well yes the night before it was dark because it was dark outside Uh but as the sun came up and lit the chapel I realized what was between me and this wooden door was simply a sheet of plexiglass. This is what he meant when he said it had been closed up. Uh, but you, of course, could see directly through the plexiglass mm. into the chapel. And I don't know if we can share the picture later, Francis. You and I can talk about the logistics of this. But uh, literally from sitting in the center of my bed, I could look out this uh, plexiglass plate window into 
the church and onto directly onto the altar where there is still to this day a large and i mean life-size pillar of our lady of mount carmel mm-hmm. which stands above the altar and i know for our liturgists uh, liturgists sorry uh who may be listening they'll note that post second vatican council that's actually not appropriate to have something above the altar but the weight and size of this uh, particular statue really precludes its removal at this point so they've simply uh, got an absolution and they've left it there so i would literally look out from the center of my bed as i was reading and see our blessed mother holding the the christ child of course the scapula in both their hands um, and that was my view uh, in addition to the altar now that room had previously been the reason for the window and by the way it's the only one in the entire monastery that has a window onto the chapel mm-hmm. the reason is it had been the infirmary for the friars years ago as is uh the case or has been the case for many years in uh, Carmel's in monasteries the sick are simply cared for there in the monastery of course that doesn't happen anymore they're they're taken to other facilities or hospitals Uh, but back then that's the way it was done the brothers would take care of the uh, friars or or even brothers who may become ill and this window was installed so that they could watch when mass was conducted and then the the host was brought up to the second story to them so that they could participate that's again and as I say, the only room in the entire monastery that has that view, and I can assure you, I never shut that window <laughs> <laughs> the whole time I was there. I do have pictures of it. It was a remarkable blessing. Oh, yes. And, and you know, <clears throat> it reminded me, I, I think if I remember correctly, um, uh, Elizabeth of the Trinity, St. Elizabeth of the Trinity had a room oh. where she had a window and she could look in. And, uh, and I could be wrong about this, but I, I that's what I'm thinking well, of. Well, it, it reminded me of... Um, uh, another, uh, you know, great saint who I have a devotion to, and that's uh, Brother Andre, now Saint mm-hmm. Andre. And I've seen the church where he used to reside. This is the previous, the the first church, very small. And he had a, uh, his room actually was above the chapel, much smaller, but he had a window and he could look down on the chapel. He would pray there for many hours each night. I was reminded of him, in fact, when I was in the room. So it was a remarkable blessing, I have to tell you. And then, of course, I went into the chapel. Now, the chapel, when I say the chapel, it's quite uh, it's a church. I mean, it's a regular church, but it's not used. It's really not occupied very often. Occasionally on Sunday, they will open it up for masses. Uh, but the Sunday I was there, in fact, they did not. Hmm, so, where do they go then? Uh, they go into the choir. They do the, uh, the mass in the choir. Okay. Uh, much smaller. Um, so it really doesn't get a lot of use. Of course, there aren't as many friars there today as there used to be, and we're going to talk about that as well. But, um, and so whenever I went into the chapel, uh, I was always alone and I had free reign. I could just turn whichever lights that I wanted to on. There's a great uh, statue of, uh, the infant of Prague there. And of course, a number of other Carmelite devotions, but, uh, St. John of the Cross is there, Teresa of Avila and so forth. Um, and I actually found myself more attracted to the chapel than to the choir, which is smaller, newer, more intimate. But the Eucharist is retained in both. And I more often than not went to the chapel as much, uh, I think, because it was dead silent in there. You couldn't hear anything. The, mm. the door that slams mm-hmm. behind you when you enter it uh, to the, fr- from the monastery is so large and thick, you, you don't hear anything that's going on. So well, it was a great place. I mean, to just think that all week long, you could just see the <laughs> tabernacle from your bed. Yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't leave. Uh, and what was interesting, last thing on this, I know you want to move on, but um, when I would turn my lights off at night in my bedroom, of course, the chapel now with the sun having gone down was dark again. My first
first experience mm-hmm. uh, when I arrived. But after a while, my eyes would adjust. I'd go to sleep, and as I typically do, I'd wake up in the middle of the night. When I woke up in the middle of the night, my eyes had adjusted to the darkness, and I could see. The only thing I could see was that white pillar of our wow. blessed lady, um, you know, standing there above the altar. And so um, it was uh, it was quite an experience. So you had the graces from the tabernacle shining on you <laughs> 24-7. That's just amazing. Well, Mark, what were your goals for this week? Because I know you, you knew what it was like to have a week at the Friars, having been to Holy Hill. Um, so, you know, had you thought about this and, and would you share that with us? Yeah, I didn't have a specific goal in mind. I had a series of um, aspirations, I guess, might be a better way to describe it, and that was to find silence. I certainly found that. Mm-hmm. Praise um, God. To get away from some of my responsibilities, although I indicated I did do some work while I was there. I had meetings and certainly phone calls and did my mail and so forth, but really tried to stay away from that as much as I could uh, while still trying to fulfill my responsibilities. Um, I wanted to spend some time with the friars and get to know some of them in a way that I had not perhaps previously. Many of them I had met previously, but didn't always have, as you know, at conferences and so forth. You don't usually get intimate you know, conversation with them. Uh, so I really wanted to do that, and I did, and I'd be happy to share some of that. Um, And I think uh, more than anything, I did view it as a mini retreat, which is why I probably went away to the chapel more often than I went to the choir because the friars uh, will typically pray in the choir if you want, um, um, you know, quiet time. And they'll go in the middle of the day and do their prayers and so on and so forth. Uh, Father Kavanaugh, uh, who we can talk about later, but he would typically stay after mass, after morning prayer. He would stay um, the longest in the choir. Um, the others were earlier to arrive. They all have sort of different schedules they keep, but, um, uh, and I enjoyed just being in the room, you know, while he was there praying, but more often than not, I wanted to be on retreat. So I would go into the chapel and, and do most of my prayers there. The, the other thing I'll say that I had as a goal, uh, Francis was to, um, how do I describe this? Uh, you know, sort of dig through their library, which is <laughs> remarkable. It, you, you would just, I know you, and you would just be in heaven there as I was. Um, the, many volumes are in French or Spanish, but, uh, and even in Italian, but, um, they had a number of volumes, of course, translated. And the, the wealth of literature, uh, resident in, in the monastery is just in- incredible. It was, uh, I could have spent, you know, the whole week just sifting through the library. But <laughs> thankfully, I didn't. Oh, well, and I know, Mark, you shared with our community um, about a great grace given to you regarding the chapel. So I was hoping that you would be willing to share with our listening audience what that was and how that affected you. Yeah, and I'll also say that I shared with Francis before we came on air, I I had reservations about it. Um, I think... My reservations are simply that I don't think we should be part of the story, but I do appreciate her counsel that oftentimes our um, experience isn't necessarily intended just for us. Right, and I think Um, this experience in particular is a a great way to help the rest of us get into this preparation for Christmas. Well, and I I, uh, am probably convicted by my own words because I have as much as said it is not 
for me as important to read what a saint wrote as to read the experiences that a saint had for yes. me to be conformed to. I'm reading a great deal about St. Uh, Teresa Margaret right now of the Sacred Heart, uh, and I'm finding, again, rereading her, that uh, her life experiences are more meaningful. Of course, she didn't leave a lot of writing, so there isn't much for us to source, uh, but it's her life experiences. So I will share briefly uh, and hope that maybe it um, you know, has, um, has some benefit to some of our listeners. But So I mentioned the window and the access that I had, the visual access I had to the altar, and that I most often prayed there. Um, on the very first day that I was in the monastery, I had made the decision that's where I was going to go and pray, knowing, uh, knowing rather that I would, you know, find quiet there. So I walked down. I had left the window open in my bedroom, so the light was coming in from that window into the chapel, actually, um, which was a revelation. And I was glad that nobody went to the chapel because they could have also seen up into my room, even mm-hmm. though it was above the, the church. You, you could certainly have access to it visually. Have access to it. So I looked uh, from the chapel, from the altar, I looked back over my shoulder, saw my window open, I looked uh, over the uh, altar and saw the Lady of, uh, you know, our, our, our Lady of Carmel in the tall white pillar. And then I looked over to the uh, Infant of Prague where I was getting ready to go and pray. I have a devotion to the Infant of Prague as well. And um, I thought, well, I'm, I want to spend time. And so as I turned and was walking in that direction, the thought that was running through my mind at that moment was, how lucky am I? What a great opportunity this is. I so mean, you, here's my room. And you're my, feeling pretty blessed and I'm pretty joyful. I'm feeling pretty good about myself, yeah. <laughs> to be honest with you, I'm probably feeling pretty good about myself and pretty upbeat. And then all of a sudden, as uh, some of our listeners, I'm sure, could relate, something welled up from inside of me, a deep uh, sense of... Um, unworthiness and and that's quite frankly the only way i can describe it and this struck you rather quickly it struck me rather quickly completely unintentional i wasn't thinking about this as i shared i i was thinking joyful thoughts uh but this moment of just sheer unworthiness struck me and i before I was able to get off the altar, uh, I sort of bent over, you know, placed my hands down on my knees, took a deep breath, and uh, I mean, it, it affected me that much. Uh, tears welled up in my eyes, and I, my, my reaction was, you know, I'm not worthy to be in this situation, in these circumstances. How is it uh, that somebody like me is, is given this opportunity? And I remember the thought <laughs> running through my mind that if the friars really knew who had, they had let in the door, they would quickly <laughs> usher him out the back door. And this is, uh, you know, I'm not reflecting on any individual experience of, uh, you know, sinfulness or anything like that. It was just a genuine sense of unworthiness to be in those circumstances. And I take that as um, a, a um, experience that the Lord was imparting um, that everything that I was being given that week was a grace. It wasn't because I'd volunteered to bring sister. It wasn't because I, you know, um, had um, uh, taken on some responsibility. It wasn't any of that. It was simply that I was being given this grace. And no, I wasn't worthy, in fairness, uh, to be receiving that. And I think in a, as gentle a way as he could, uh, the Lord wanted to impart that to me. I will tell you that I look back over my shoulder to look at the face of the Blessed Mother in our um, statue of Our Lady of Mount Carmel just to make sure she wasn't um, grimacing at me. (laughs) (laughs) The um, 
the uh, look on her face hadn't changed, so I figured I was okay. I stayed in the chapel, and I went over to the infant of Prague, and I prayed. But uh, I can tell you with a bit more humility than I'd had halfway across that altar. So. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. And, you know, after having heard about that um, from you, I mean, that has stayed with me, and I have reflected almost daily since you have first shared that. And it is so special to me. So I am so grateful because the fruit from your experience has been fruitful for me. Um, so how did that experience then shape the remainder of your stay? And, and to this day, you know, uh, a, a couple of weeks out from the experience, how has this experience affected you? Well, you know, you might think, it would be demoralizing when we have to. And again, I want to reemphasize, it wasn't as though I was, you know, facing some failing in my life where I was reflecting on some, you know, sinful act or anything like that uh, from from any previous experience. We all have our shortcomings. I certainly have my fair share. It wasn't a consequence of anything like that. It was simply a, a, a condition, a realization that everything that was being given to me is a grace. I, could, I think that's probably the better way to emphasize it. It wasn't just, oh, I'm unworthy and I, you know, I don't belong here or whatever. It was more recognize that everything that's being given to you right now is a grace. So how does it affect you? I mean, the only word I can come up with is humility. You realize our unworthiness, and I don't see it as a negative. I don't Mm -hmm. see it as a bad thing. I think it's part of healing. In fact, I think it may be the central part of healing for us to realize our unworthiness. You know, we so often think we've got to work our way through it. And that's in part, Francis, you Mm -hmm. asked what were my goals. And as I indicated. I didn't have a goal. I had aspirations. Oh, I want to pray well. And I did pray well. I want to find silence. And I did find silence. I want to read. And I did read. I want to write one of the programs that we mm-hmm. so often do together. And I did do that. And, and I was thinking perhaps as I was walking across that altar, this is going to be a great week of accomplishment. I'll have all these things that I'll get done in all this time I'll spend in prayer. And we can sort of fall back into this trap of thinking it's our activity, it's our action, it's our initiative and so on and so forth that is bringing about our holiness. Well, that's not true. That's simply not true. We have a responsibility. We have to do the minimum. But the Lord does all the work and all of these things that we experience, in my case, the open window down to the altar, the ability to go into the chapel, the opportunity to be in silence for a week, to live with the friars, to draw from their library, was all a grace to me. It had nothing to do with anything I had done. Even the invitation to go there was the Holy Spirit. I realized that. Um, And so uh, that was the consequence, um, I, I think, for the remainder of the week was this realization that everything I was experiencing was a gift. And, um, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to spoil the gift. You want to try to take as full advantage of it as you can, but recognize it's a gift. You didn't do anything for it. And I imagine that is continuing to echo through each of your days. I mean, you don't forget something like that. It just keeps replaying, right? Yes. I think you, you, you know, you go through stages, right? It's like new doors open and you get to enter in. I don't mean the seven, uh, you know, interior castles at Teresa's. So I'm just talking about we go through experiences and we're never the same afterwards. We, it changes us fundamentally and, you know, we just, we just kind of move on. And yeah, you get to draw from that experiences, uh, th- those experiences each time. Um, and they should continue to bear fruit. And their realization was everything that is happening to us in life, good or bad, by the way, is a grace and there's mercy behind it. Uh, we can react to it differently, but it doesn't change God and it doesn't change the work he's going to do with us. And that sense of humility and, and the truth of who God is and who we are, um, what a great 
way to begin Advent. And so I invite all of our listeners to reflect on how much you are given. Everything that you have in your life, everything is from from God. And all of the negative, he turns into good if we just cooperate with him. We just need to keep turning back to him. All right, that was wonderful and um, very special. Um, but now I'm going to turn to another area. Uh, you've mentioned a couple of friars, Father Kieran Kavanaugh. Um, talk, talk to us about... Uh, which of the friars you got to meet and talk with, and what were your impressions? Well, um, of course, most of them I know just by first names because you don't use last names. And so Father Kavanaugh, um, I called him Father Kavanaugh, to be honest with you. The other friars I usually called by their first name because everybody else did as well. I, I, I would say Father or so-and-so. But Father Kavanaugh is 82 years old, I think, and I just felt that it was appropriate to call him Father Kavanaugh. <laughs> so I didn't call him, call him Father Kieran. Um, I... Saw him for the first time. Well, actually, the first time he was just coming out of the uh, the bathroom, having uh, done his morning shave. But um, and and we just sort of glanced at each other and said hi. But later, I saw him in the kitchen. Uh, he was eating his breakfast. I was eating mine, and um, we didn't really talk. He's somewhat reserved, and I've been told he's this way most of the time. Um, I just. Um, uh, somebody came by and said, oh, have you met Father Kavanaugh? I said, oh, I know Father Kavanaugh quite well. And and uh, he had actually, that moment, he had introduced himself to me and somebody else came in and affirmed, you know, this is who it was. But um, uh, I, I was taken aback by that because, of course, uh, if you've been in Carmelite circles or read any of the Carmelite literature, you know who Father Kieran Kavanaugh is. And so a moment later when it was just the two of us in the kitchen, I was actually getting ready to leave. And I stopped and I turned back and said, by the way, Father Kavanaugh, I know you very well. I said, I know your literature. I know the work you've done for Carmel. And I said, I just want to tell you um, that. I personally thank you, and I believe there are thousands of others out there like me that are so uh, appreciative of your life and of your contribution to each of our lives. Uh, and I said it just like that. And I, <laughs> I have to tell you, he just blushed. That's all he did is he just sort of blushed and did a little wink and nod. If you ever hear Father Kavanaugh speak, he has uh, never lost his Irish, you know, sort of lilt in his voice. It's it's very obvious. He grew up in a very Irish household, I think in Wisconsin, if I'm not mistaken. That's what he told me. Uh, but anyway, um, I wanted to make sure to take that opportunity with he and I alone to, to share that with him uh, because he is has been just, uh, you know, an absolute gift to, to the order. Um, and um, I don't know that he knows that or or would accept it uh, when it was said to him, but I certainly was going to take the opportunity to say it to him, and I did. <laughs> well, time is running by so fast, Mark, and I had a lot more questions for you, but um, we don't have time for all of them. So <laughs> well, I, I also want to just quickly mention Father Mark because, uh, you know, we had Father Mark here for a radio program. Father and- Mark. Foley, right? Foley, right. Yes. Sorry, Father <laughs> okay. Mark Foley. Well, our listeners need to know who yes, that is. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, and uh, I, I got to spend a wonderful evening with him, both in recreation and at, at a meal. And we shared our appreciation for Dante's um, Divine Comedy and for some other literature, Russian literature, which he likes and I appreciate. Um, and and I, I'll tell you, you, you really get a sense of who a person is when you have an opportunity to do that, other than just watching them present. Mm-hmm. Of course, he's a great presenter. He's been a great writer and also made significant contributions to the order, but to be in a more intimate setting with him and listen to some of his own experiences was very uh, enlightening. And you do realize, you know, the struggles and the trials that so many of our friars go through in the life that they have chosen, and they're such uh, devoted men. And um, it, it, 
you know, opens up quickly the opportunity for me to say that uh, one of the missions I took away, because I also got to meet three of the young um, men who are studying for the priesthood. Right. They're all at different stages, and I won't try to, uh, you know, elaborate on their biographies because we don't have time, but I do want to say this. Um, it has become my personal mission, and it will be part of a discussion with our council, actually, Francis, uh, next month, to begin a ministry of praying for vocations, not just for those that are in process, as these three young gentlemen are, but also for entry of new friars. It is my hope to fill Whitehall and to fill Holy Hill uh, with new um, young men who are willing to uh, step into the Carmelite order. Um, I think we have to take that on as a personal mission, uh, and it certainly has become one for me. So uh, I encourage uh, for those of us who are Carmelites, and even if you're not, feel free to join us in praying for vocations to the Carmelite order. It's so important for us. Well, wonderful. Um, now we only have about another minute or so. So, Mark, I, I just want to ask you, um, how has this trip prepared you for Advent? And what suggestions uh, can you give us, all of our listeners, for this Advent season in preparation for the incarnation of the Lord? Well, that's a large topic, as you know, for me. Um, and we're going to discuss it, actually, in the next couple of weeks. I'll, okay. I'll give some insight on that, this idea of the incarnation and what does Advent mean for us personally as it relates to the incarnation. We're, we will talk about that more. I would encourage you to reflect very deliberately on that mystery of the rosary uh, known as the nativity which is the incarnation and the invitation that each of us has to take on Christ in our own being in our own person we are to become another Christ we are uh, I will share just briefly through devotion to the sacred heart I believe is the central avenue and with the blessed mother's help for us becoming another Christ for us uh, literally allowing Christ to extend his humanity through us. That's sort of the precursor to the next couple of weeks of conversations that Francis and I will have. But Advent has begun, so the process for each of us needs to begin. Invite Christ into your heart, enter his heart, and let him extend his humanity, his redemptive work, through you individually. That's my invitation. Well, Mark, I want to thank you especially for sharing these um, very special experiences with us. Um, we're so grateful, and uh, I'm I'm confident that the fruit of your experiences shared with us will continue bringing further fruit. So let us go to our closing prayer. Um, this is from, uh, again, day one of Father Gabriel of St. Mary Magdalene's uh, divine intimacy. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord, do not, I beseech you, permit that this exceeding great love, which led you to become incarnate for my salvation, be given in vain. My poor soul needs you so much. It sighs for you as for a compassionate physician who alone can heal its wounds, draw it out of its languor and tepidity, and infuse into it new vigor, new enthusiasm, new life. Come, Lord. Come, I am ready to welcome your work with a docile, humble heart, ready to let myself be healed, purified, and strengthened by you. Yes, with your help, I will make any sacrifice, renounce everything that might hinder your redeemer, redeeming work in me. Show your power, O Lord, and come. Come, de delay no longer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Well, I remind you, you've been listening to Carmelite Conversations on Radio Maria Christian Voice in your home. Until we're with you again next week, God bless.